So a number of years ago, I met a real life, less successful, certainly less attractive than George Clooney, but more annoying and equally ungrounded version of his character, Ryan Bigham, in Up in the Air. This was eight, maybe nine years ago. It was in the Fort Lauderdale airport where I lived at the time. And it was August when I was waiting for a flight uh, back to what I considered home, which, you know, northeast. I've been very glad to move back here. And this poor guy, August in South Florida, has so many storms that roll through. And he had been bumped from one flight to another to another. And it showed. It really, really showed. We were sort of all clustered. You know those flights when people really want to get on the flight and that sort of herd mentality sort of jumps in and everyone, one person takes a step forward and another person takes a step forward and all of a sudden you're in this scarcity place where there's just no elbow room and everyone's trying to fight their way in. It was that kind of flight. And South Florida's a little like that anyway, even on a good day. And so, you know, it wasn't the most pleasurable place. So we were all sort of packed in there like sardines waiting to get on our flight. And this guy kept talking about how he had spent the last five, six hours of his life when he had been waiting for a flight. He said, you know, I rode the escalator up, and I rode the escalator down, then I rode the elevator up, and then I rode the elevator down, then I had to go through security three different times. And they started making jokes about, ha, 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 you know, if, uh, you know, next time I do it, if I want to get that body cavity search from that really sexy TSA agent, you know I mean? So he was that kind of guy, and just grading and grading and going on and going on about how he had to... How he had to, what he kept saying over and over again, I have to kill the time. You just got to kill the time. You got to kill the time. And it's just like, dude, you know, just, if you change that K to an F and try to fill the time, you know, sit down and write the great American novel. Do something with your life. Even talk to other people. Ask them a question instead of complaining all the time. And finally, I would think I was the last person on the plane because I couldn't stand to be near that complaining anymore. So I just went to the back of the line to get away from him. Now, like I said, this guy was a less successful, less attractive version in many ways of the character that George Cooney plays in Up in the Air. Ryan Bigham, his whole life is on the move. He is more successful than the guy in line who was complaining about how held up he was, more successful with living with fewer drags on his person or on his time, until he can't any longer. And that's what the movie is about. There's this pronouncement that he says in it, the slower we move, the faster we die. The slower we move, the faster we die. And he lives by that mantra. He wants no encumbrances. He wants no strings on him. Remember that cheesy 80s song? Ain't nobody going to break my stride. Ain't nobody going to slow me down. Uh Uh-huh. I got to keep moving. You remember that? That's sort of, I thought of his unofficial theme song throughout the entire movie. His highest aspiration in life, and it is distinctive, certainly, but Ryan Bingham's highest aspiration in life is this, that he will be the seventh person in history to accumulate 10 million frequent flyer miles. This is his highest, most noble aspiration. George Clooney is so perfect to play this role because he is so breezy. Now, I have to tell you, when I, like everyone or many people, you know, started watching ER way back in the day, I thought he was a complete lightweight. A good-looking face, no substance. But then his career started to take a change. I think I really started to pay notice when he played that role in Michael Clayton. If any of you have seen that, I'd really recommend if you have not. He plays a character whose ability to go through life without strings attaching to him or trying to cut the strings that are attached to other people, those connections that connect other people to other people, that becomes his undoing in that movie and it becomes his undoing here as well too and george clooney at first seemingly so smooth so glib so easy the face 
of that ease gets taken down in this movie. Now, there's a real tragic backdrop it's up in the air. How many of you have seen it, by the way? Oh, okay. Preaching to the choir, perhaps. The real tragedy in this movie, the backdrop to it, is our own Great Recession. Perhaps some of you know this, that many of the people interviewed talking to the camera throughout the movie are real people who have lost their jobs talking about their real experience of heartbreak and loss and fear and despair. We meet them because this is George Clooney's, Ryan Bingham's role. He goes from place to place, from Topeka to Minneapolis to Omaha, firing people. That is his job. He goes from place to place working for a firm that other firms contract to so he can come in and let their people go. Not in that good as in let my people go kind of way, but let their people go in the sense of we cannot afford you or we don't need your services any longer. Now, his character does not enjoy being cruel, but he's the perfect person to do it in some ways. Because... If you've ever been up on a plane or up high in a building, and maybe you found yourself saying this to yourself, you look down from on high, and you see the people down there on the ground, and what do we say? They look like what? They look like ants. That's kind of how George Clooney's character in this movie starts out treating other people. He is so high above everyone else that it's not that he hates them or disdains them. They're just not of particular interest to them. He glibly says, and then has repeated back to him, he thinks he originated this line, but clearly he didn't. He says to the people who are sitting in front of him, who he's had to let go, anybody who's ever built an empire or changed the world sat right where you are now. And some people call BS on him in that line. It's probably true in some ways, but it's his way, perhaps, of easing his conscience of not wanting to connect He's sort of an up-and-coming business guru. He has this image, this image that he carries around with him, and he does it at sort of airport Marriott's and airport Hilton's, and he aspires to do this big conference in Las Vegas. His image is, what's in your backpack? He says, unpack your backpack. Put that backpack on and, you know, put your apartment in there. Put your house in there. Then put your relationships in there. Put all those arguments and unnecessary things you've got to talk about. Put all those secrets and compromises. And then... Feel the weight of that backpack. Feel the weight of that backpack, what it is to be connected. And he said, just, you know, just, just let it all go. Just let it go. go. Unpack your backpack. Go through this life easy. Go through this life without any strings on you. This kind of immature freedom reminds me of, if any of you remember a fish called Wanda. Remember Otto, who's so dense he believes that his practice of Buddhism is enlightening him and allowing him to maintain his status as a contract killer at the same time in that comedy. And the Jamie Lee Curtis character says, the primary message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. In some ways, that's what Ryan Bingham's character believes. Now, the movie starts to change because he begins a romance. And at first, I love this. His idea of foreplay in the hotel bar is showing off all of his frequent flyer cards and his plastic. This is his way of connecting. Now, at the same time, his freedom is also threatened because all the things going on throughout the rest of the economy are starting to affect him. And so his firm 
starts to examine whether they can reduce their cost by not having their people fly out. So they bring in a young protege, a 23-year-old from Cornell, a woman named Natalie, who is going to teach them all to fire people by remote through video conference. Now, this young protege, Natalie, she clearly doesn't have a clue of how people are wired, but she sees through Ryan Bingham, at least. She starts to hold up to him a mirror of his immature freedom. And at one point, she says, absolutely accurately, you're like a 12-year-old. <laughs> he is like a 12-year-old and a not terribly mature 12-year-old. I know some actual 12-year-olds who are much more mature than his character is. This is the story and the central takeaway of Up in the Air. It is the story of someone growing beyond the nursery of their own immature freedom and recognizing what it takes to really connect with their own heart and with the lives of other people. D.H. Lawrence, some of you might know that name, you know, Lady Chatterley's lover and all that. He was sort of a proto-Unitarian in his time. And he said that, in fact, in life, there is not one birth that we have. There are many births. He said there's our actual physical birth. And then there's the birth where many of us recognize that there are many fun things for us to play in our nursery, both literal and metaphorical. But then he said there's another birth that many of us go through, the birth of awakening and awakening and awakening. When we start to hear the laughs and the cries. The never-ceasing, never-ending laughs and cries of our fellow brothers and sisters. This is what Ryan Bingham starts to hear in, in this movie. One of those real-life fired people says into the camera, It's been told to me that losing a job is like a death in the family. But personally, I feel like the people I work with are my family. And I'm the one who died. This movie is all about, in its most skillful way, learning to pay attention, being grounded in those rites of passage. There are a part of each and every one of our lives, the small ones and the very big ones, and very skillfully interlaced throughout the entire movie are very signature rites of passage. There is a marriage there are deaths, there are endings, there are beginnings, beginnings of relationships, ends of relationships. The main character starts to hear the cries of his own soul and those of other people. This conforms in many ways to one of the things that we talk about here at Wellsprings, one of the pieces of our DNA, one of our core beliefs. We believe that the Spirit, quote-unquote, talks to us through our everyday experiences and relationships. Through daily spiritual awareness, we aspire to better understand where these conversations are leading us. I would ask you this day, how do you hear the spirits talking to you, whatever name you give to that depth of sacred reality? I believe that there is no other way that the spirit could talk to us, but through the very average, very mundane, very quotidian stuff that's all ready here the basic facts on the ground of our lives the getting up the going to work the being with our kids the being with our families the being with our friends the basic stuff that already has so much to teach us if we would just pay attention to those rites of passage through time emerson our great gigantic spiritual teacher of his time was found himself 
tired of all what he felt to be the outmoded definitions of God in his time. They were all too much based on something far away and remote and yet at the same time strangely human in its power to condemn us and judge us. He finally arrived at an understanding of God that he called the God of this day. Not anywhere else, but if it is real, the God of this moment, right here, right now. It is both more mystical and more intimate. This idea that wisdom is speaking through us in all the rites of passage that we live with. One of the key readings that we use for our 2.0, our listening to our live small group that's going to start this week. We have a reading from Frederick Buechner, who's a novelist and a minister. He said, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. This is the reason that spiritual practice is one of our core values at Wellsprings. We want to encourage each and every one of us to stay awake in life, to, as D.H. Lawrence said, to recognize it is not a once-and-done kind of thing, this birth of our spirits, this birth of our souls. It is ongoing and with us all the time. Really, it's nothing more and nothing less than you're learning to use our freedom, our choices, wisely. Ryan Bingham's only conception of freedom is at first freedom from. It says, I am as free as I have no constraints on me. I am free from being slowed down. This kind of immature freedom. I got a pretty clear example of, I want to say about a year ago or so. Somehow, I got contacted by an online magazine that is largely directed at women in their 20s and 30s. At least they told me who they were pitching it to. And they must have entered in, I imagine their Google search was, uh, Minister, Divorce, Marriage, and Sex. Uh, because somehow came up with my name. I, I have written, not about, I have not written about, not my own. But um, I wrote a book, and some of you know about it. It's about the experience of my divorce. It's about the experience of many other young men learning to grow up and pay attention to their lives in a meaningful way, how to move from immature freedom to more mature freedom. So I was contacted by this online magazine that said, you know, we'd like to interview you. We'd like to interview a quote-unquote, and I've used this term, man of the cloth about divorce and about sex. I said, okay, before I consent to this interview, let me check you out online. Eventually, the interview, for whatever reason, never happened. And they described themselves through the email as edgy, an edgy magazine. They just talk about sex a lot and they sensationalize it. That's their definition of edgy. And there was this story that was the most featured story at their online site. And it was a story about a woman and her husband who had agreed to have what they call an open marriage, that they could each have as many sexual partners as they chose. Now, I don't want to sound like a moral scold here. They have the right to do with their bodies whatever they want to. Talking about the moral and the spiritual dimensions of this. She described in some pretty graphic detail about her physical trysts, semi-anonymous in many cases, and her husband's. And she clearly sharing it in the sense that it was supposed to be liberating. And I wasn't so much turned on or turned off as much as I was deeply sad. It seemed to be so lonely. One of the things that Ryan Bigham has asked in the movie is, don't you ever get lonely? It's not like you live such an isolated life. And he surrounds, almost seeming to stamp his foot while he says it. I'm surrounded. But surrounded in an airport 
having only transactions with other people while you're moving to someplace else. We see that is not real connection. He wants life to exist on his own terms only. This immature freedom is a form of control, of wanting to play God so only the stuff happens to us that we deem should happen to us. And we think that somehow, or he thinks that somehow, our life will have no limits then. But eventually all lives have limits. And we're just lonelier when we encounter them, when we have no real connections and relationships. Now in the movie, rather skillfully, we see that marriage, that singular rite of passage. He goes back home to a very unsexy place, 200 miles in winter north of Milwaukee, to the frozen tundra. He is there begrudgingly at the wedding of his sister. And his older sister is there too. And we see some of the coldness of the heart that perhaps he grew up with and some of the broken family dynamics that led him to want to push back against real and intimate human connection. At one point, the man who is going to marry his sister has cold feet. And his older sister says, get in there to Ryan, get in there and talk to him. And he says... I talk people out of making commitments. Why do you want me to go there? And she says, that's a really stupid thing to do. But he does talk for a living, and he's very, very persuasive. And he goes in there, and he asks this guy who's about to break his younger sister's heart. He asks him about the most important times in his life. And you can see he's coming to the realization of what this means while he's saying it. That it's not just a line for him, perhaps, anymore. All those important moments in life that this man can think about. And he says, were other people there? And the guy says, yes. And with that, he recognizes that he's ready to make this commitment. Now, one of the other cool things about that scene, it's in a church school. And he's reading the book, The Velveteen Rabbit. He doesn't say he's reading the Velveteen Rabbit. We can see it. We just see him reading it. And he sort of says jokingly to Ryan Bigham, George Clooney's character, and he walks in. Good stuff. <laughs> he closes it and he puts it down. And then George Clooney talks him into making the commitment. By the way, the author of the Velveteen Rabbit? Unitarian. Mar Marjorie something or other. I cannot think of it, the full name right now. But if you remember the moral of that story. It is only when the Velveteen Rabbit, so pristine, so new, at the time of its first birth, goes through many other births of being loved, of being connected, of being held, and yes, having its fur worn down entirely. The moral of this is that we are most real sometimes when life has been most wearing upon us. Lovable is what happens to us when our fur, sensing this a little myself here, <laughs> when our hair gets a little worn down. But of course there's a risk in this, and we can see that's probably why George Clooney's character has taken so long to really start to attend, and sadly so, because his own romance in the movie doesn't work out so well. We see at first why he maybe didn't attend to the meaning of his heart because it's the first and the most inconvenient truth that any of us ever learn. 
which is that opening our hearts is the first step to having our hearts break. Now, many of us recognize this is just the price of maturity and that we can trust that our deeper loves, deeper relationships, even after heartbreak, and we learn not to close our hearts and that this is a lifelong process of moving against that tide out towards relationship from the closing down of ourselves out to that wider and more vulnerable opening. Anne Lamott is one of my favorite spiritual writers. She talks about the other sort of side of the rites of passage, marriage being one, death being the one biggie, the one biggie. Anne Lamott says that people who are dying mindfully, dying while they are truly alive, she said they live big, round, pregnant hours. Big, round, pregnant hours. A few months ago, I got an email, a number of us did, from Carolyn Church, who's the widow of Forest Church, who was one of my primary teachers in ministry. Forrest, in some ways, because of his natural charisma and his natural style and his just incredible volcanic intelligence, was at one point in his ministry, and I'm not sharing secrets out of school, anyone who knew him knows this, could have been the ministerial version of Ryan Bigham, just sort of moving through life, connecting with people only when convenient. But Forrest did wake up before he died. Many years before, put down his drink, connected more deeply with his family. See, because ultimately, and I hear this in Forrest's story, as I'm just going to tell you in a second, there are moments when we cannot move fast, when life will slow us down regardless of whether we want it to or not. Just as there are many births in life, there are many deaths in life too, not just the final one. Carolyn, in recounting Forrest's last moments, talks about he had uh, esophageal cancer. And so even before his physical life ended, his voice almost went entirely, and he could barely be heard. But one of the nurses, and this is one of um, Forrest's writings they wrote about in one of his last books called Love and Death, he said, be kind to nurses. <laughs> be kind to nurses. And he always was, regardless of how awful he felt when he was dying from his cancer. At one point, one of his nurses learned that he was a minister, and she asked him for his book. Love and Death, she brought in a copy, he signed it. She went away, and ten minutes later, she came back in tears. She said that a year ago, she had had twins who died soon after they were born. She said she felt so spiritually bereft that she stayed away from community entirely. And crying to this dying man who himself was crying, she said, I think I'm going to go back. I'm going to try and find some spiritual connection again. Forrest died with big round hours. In those moments when there's nowhere else to run and nowhere else to go and you just got to pay attention, the most any of us can do would be our best and broken selves. Still in that moment, he was able to forge connection with other people. About a week after that, Carolyn took him home. And he died five hours later. He was a big friend of uh, Tracy Chapman's song, Change. Do you know that beautiful song? 
And these were the last words that he heard played to him. If you knew that you would die today, saw the face of God in love, would you change? Would you change? If you knew that love can break your heart when you're down so low, you cannot fail. Would you change? Would you change? Carolyn said, Forrest shed some tears, and then he was gone. And then in that beautiful final note that I hope can be said about all of us when it's our time too, she said of Forrest, he wouldn't have changed a thing. Because he did all the changing that he had to be there at that moment. See, the truth is not what Ryan Bingham said. The truth is that, in fact, the slower we move, the longer we live. And by longer, I'm not just talking years. By longer, I'm talking quality of existence. When we choose to slow down, when we choose to open our hearts, when we choose to remain connected, no matter sometimes how difficult it is, we know that we are adding, if not years... Although perhaps we may, but we are adding a quality of time to our lives. Efficiency will not help us cheat death. But living by the cult of efficiency will certainly do one thing. It will cheat us of life. Because it's not just death that Anne Lamont was talking about. People who live mindfully live Big, round, pregnant lives. Birth and death and birth and death in each and every day. In this day as in any other. The slower we move, the longer we live. Please live slowly today. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our heart's deepest yearning. May we find each of us that writes deep pace of our lives. The pace that knows by the goes by the name of Sabbath or peace or taking time mindfully, whatever we would call it, may we recognize it, may we see it, may we live through all the rites of passage in our life, knowing it's truly not a race. It is an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to move, yes, but even more an opportunity to make progress, to find ourselves moving through time, taking on the shape of wholeness, taking on the shape of fullness, that our lives may know the reality of death and the reality of birth and the reality of love. Amen.